0: So good to be with you. So good to open the word with you. And uh, Pastor Daniel and, and our team, they're, they are I think, officially on their flight heading towards Cameroon. So let's make sure we don't forget to lift them up in prayer. These next two weeks are, are gonna be very uh, energizing and exciting, but also have the potential to be very draining and exhausting as well. So let's make sure we lift them up in prayer. Let's make sure to remember Um, the families that they've left behind as well. Texts of encouragement and um, invites to come over, those kind of things are a real blessing uh, for those that are are still here. Our text this morning is going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at Philippians 2 verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. And before we dive into the text, I just want to say that I... I love sports. Any, other, any others of you out there that would say, I am a sports lover, like enjoy sports of all kinds. I enjoy baseball, I enjoy hockey, basketball, football. It doesn't matter, I just enjoy watching sports. And every year, or every few years rather, when the Olympics come around, I'm always amazed at the, the new sports that, that come into play as, I, as I'm watching our nation compete for the gold medal. Some of the sports I love to watch, some of the sports I scratch my head and say, how in the world can you call that a sport? But I do have to say that, that there is, while, while there are many sports that I don't understand in the Olympics, there is one sport that I both don't enjoy watching and I greatly admire due to its, its complexity, and that's synchronized swimming. I don't know, are there any synchronized swimming fans out there? Anybody brave enough to say, I used to do synchronized swimming? No. I don't want to make fun of synchronized swimming, but I, it's one of those sports that, that I, I don't enjoy watching, but I also greatly admire it. And if you're tempted to think that this is a pushover sport, I want you to consider some of the rules for synchronized swimming. I looked these up online because I wanted to understand a little bit of what it is that goes into synchronized swimming. Scores are given on a scale of 1 to 10 in increments scored to the tenth of a point. Judges are evaluating both design and control. So they want to evaluate based on what it looks like as well as the control that the swimmers can exhibit while in the water. At no point during the event is any member of the team allowed to touch the bottom of the pool. So all of the lifts, all of the formations, and the entirety of their routine is all done while suspended in the water. It's amazing. The design rating of a routine is determined by the accuracy of the positions and the correctness of the transitions between those positions. They're also scored on control, which include extensions and height and stability and even keeping in tempo with the music. I mean, for me, I would be struggling just to keep my head above water. But they're thinking about all of these things. They're focusing on all of these little details, And if the details of these regulations aren't enough for you, keep in mind that they're also judging on how well the team members stay in sync with each other. The technical component of the judging includes technical merit, execution, synchronization, level of difficulty. All of these things, they're they're evaluating each each of these elements with absolute intricacy and detail. Success in the sport of synchronized swimming involves absolute focus, tireless work ethic, and an unwavering commitment to one another. Losing sight of any of these goals would ultimately lead to utter failure of the synchronized swimming team. I imagine the coach, prior to a synchronized swimming event, going into the locker room on the eve of their competition and challenging the team to remember their training, Stay focused in their execution, to not forget the details, to keep their eyes on the goal, the end result of what it is that they're striving for, and to work together. You know, Paul, in his letter to the Philippian believers, was pressing into the body in chapter 2. And as I think about this text, I envision the Apostle Paul kind of walking into the locker room of their lives. And challenging them, challenging his team prior to the big competition. And as he opens up this chapter, he calls them to enter into this life journey, this context, uh, this contest by remembering the moorings that would fuel their success. And more importantly, the ones that would fuel dynamic gospel unity. You know, we're gonna look at this text together. Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. I'm gonna read it, follow along in your scriptures if you would. Paul says this: He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full, of, being in full accord And of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, as this this text opens up in chapter two, what I find interesting as we dive into this text is Paul's usage of the word if. If is a conditional word, right? It it implies two realities. One where the conditions are met and it produces an outcome. And one where the conditions are not met. And it leads to the forfeiture of that outcome. For the Philippian believers, though, as Paul is using this word if, he's, he's almost implying, a duh, these things are true of you. For those of you who have given your lives to Christ... It's almost re- rhetorical. And it would almost imply an emphatic, yes, it could actually be read, being that the following conditions have been met in your lives. Enter into this contest with confidence. These are realities in you for those of you who have placed your faith in Christ. So we have to ask the question, what are these precursory items presented in verse 1? These realities that would ultimately shape their dynamic gospel unity. Well, the first thing I think we see in this text is we see that they have been encouraged in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, he says, his, he, he, he wants them to remember the encouragement that they have in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we say, well, what was it about Christ that was to encourage them? Well, his presence in their commissioning, Matthew chapter 28. Remember Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. What was his encouragement? I am with you always, always, even unto the end of the age. His presence in their commissioning, his understanding in their trial. Hebrews 4.15, he was in all points tested like as we are, yet without sin, he knows your pain, he knows your struggle, he knows your grief, he knows your heartache. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We can rest in the fact that he knows everything you're going through. We can be encouraged in his equipping spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1.13, his divine power has granted you all things that pertain unto life and godliness. His enabling power, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength. These realities ought to be the source of much encouragement for us. Know that as a body of believers, these are the ways in which Jesus is ministering in us and through us. So, in light of the fact that we've been encouraged in Christ, take hope. hope. Have your faith bolstered. Be encouraged but not just encouraged in Christ. He says, if there's any comfort by his love. So we've been comforted by his love. So what are the ways in which his love brings us comfort? Well, his love pursued me when I hated him. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us in that while I was still a sinner, Jesus died for me. But not only that, his love gave me life when I was powerless to choose him. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So his love gave me life. His love compels me to a greater sense of faithfulness. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ compels me. It motivates me. It it, it pursues me and spurs me on to pursue all it is that God has for me. And if this wasn't enough to tether my heart to, he goes on to state that I have also been animated by the Spirit of God. He says, if there's been any participation in the Spirit, I, I know that this is an interesting phrase and can somewhat be problematic for us as we're trying to gain a greater sense of what he's saying in this text. But I think when he says this idea of animated in the spirit, I think he's alluding to the fact that the spirit is at work in us. So we see a few things. We see that the spirit enables true communion with the father. It says he helps us in our weaknesses. Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. So the Spirit enables true communion with the Father. The Spirit enables me to know Jesus in an experiential sense. Philippians chapter 3, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made like him in his death. The Spirit brings life to my death. Romans 8, 11, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The spirit mobilizes righteousness. Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my Holy Spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God has been so good to us, brothers and sisters. As we think about the ways in which he's blessed us, is your heart bolstered today as you hear about all of the ways in which he's encouraged us and strengthened us and nurtured us? Paul takes it one step further though. He said, just as you've been nourished by these amazing truths, so also those who have been transformed by such a powerful grace, which leads to this last statement we find in verse one loved and cared for by the people of God who have also been transformed by his grace. If there's any affection, any sympathy, he says, with this gospel of grace being the foundation of our gospel unity, out of it flows the ability to live out the one another's in scripture, bearing with one another's burdens, praying for one another, loving one another, admonishing one another, living in harmony with one another accepting one another. And the list goes on and on and on. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in light of these glorious realities and faith bolstering anchors for our souls, he moves on into verses two through four. And here we're gonna find the heart of our challenge in this text. In the remaining time that we have left, his challenge to the Philippian believers and the crux, I think, of what he's saying to us some 2,000 years later, being that all of this is true of you. If you claim the name of Christ, if you've given your heart to him, if you've surrendered, you've bowed your knee to King Jesus. He leads off with number one, complete my joy. Complete my joy. Well, what does he mean by this statement? Well, I think what he's trying to say is live for the cause for which I gave my life. You know, it's important for us to understand when he's talking about this idea of joy, I think he's, he's referring to a couple of different things here. A couple of different aspects to his joy in his walk with God. First of all, I, we undoubtedly have to understand that when he's talking about joy, he's referring to an unshakable joy that's, that's related to his own relationship with God. And it's independent of the faith of others. It's an enduring state of peace and acceptance that Paul has that overpowers his circumstances. So peace in his heart because he's no longer at war with almighty God. He's surrendered to his will. He's surrendered to his way. He's yielding his own stubborn will. And he's ready to say, God, I'm eager to follow you. He's at peace. But not just peace. This idea of acceptance also permeates his understanding of joy. His standing before God is complete in the person and work of Jesus. There's no other work to be done. It's not of his own merit, but on the merits of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that's one aspect to this joy for the Apostle Paul. But when we understand this idea of completeness of joy that he's talking about, he's saying complete my joy... There is a completeness to Paul's joy that comes as those whom he loves embrace the passion that so compels him. Those people he's pouring into, he's saying, I want to see you love Jesus with the same passion. He wants them to to love what has so gripped his heart. He desires for them to apprehend, to lay hold of that for which he has been apprehended on. He wants to see them run hard after God. And running hard after God in this way adds another dimension to the rejoicing in his heart. As those whom he loves are embracing that for which he gave his life. So how are they to complete his joy? More importantly, brothers and sisters, what challenge is here for us? So as I stand before you, there is a joy that's unshakable in my heart in regards to my own walk with God. And there's nothing you can think, say, or do about me, towards me, or acting upon me that's going to break that joy, that bond that I have with Christ. But if you say, Pastor Mike, what does it take for for us, the body, to complete your joy as a pastor? You know what? Run hard after that for which... We, as your leaders, are devoting so much time and energy and passion. You know, Paul hits it in this text. He challenges all of us. He says, if 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 you're gonna complete my joy, here's what it's gonna look like. First of all, he says, think as one. Think as one, be of the same mind. Now there's a few things that we need to think the same about. The same mind about the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, it is the message of life. It is the message of victory, both in this life and forevermore. It is central to everything we say and everything that we do. It's not merely what we're about on Sunday, but it's a lifestyle devoted to his truth. A lifestyle devoted to proclaiming his message. The gospel is who we are. It's to be our passion every moment of every day. You wonder what it means to to complete the joy of those leaders who are loving Jesus with all of their lives. Well, be of the same mind about the gospel. Be of the same mind about the truth. The word of God, it's our passion. It's vital to the health of our day. Love the word, run to the word, cling to the word, embrace the word. It's central to our value system as Christians. It's non negotiable. Be of the same mind about what really matters in life the gospel, the gathering. We prioritize the togetherness of God's people. Why? Because it matters. Because it matters. The mutual encouragement, the mutual strengthening, the growth around the word, the love for his truth, the worship, the gathering of his people, the goodness of God. Complete my joy. We not only complete the joy by thinking as one, but by also serving as one. He uses the phrase having the same love. You know, we live in a world of competing loves competing passions, that, that same line of thinking is ultimately creeping into our church as well. It could be arguments over worship style, programs, methodology and ministry, priorities in life. You know, Paul's challenge to them is to come back to the center and remember the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing. What did Jesus say when he was asked about what is the most important thing? You shall Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every fiber of your being, brothers and sisters, needs to throb in love and deep devotion for Almighty God. And the second commandment is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am a keep it simple, stupid kind of guy. Because I'm thick in the head, I can't make it too complicated. It's love God, love people. Be passionate in your walk with God and be passionate in the way that you live out the gospel with others. Serve as one, having the same love. As we are loved by Christ, so love. Paul in Romans 5 describes that love for us. He says, God showed his love for us in this and that. While we were still sinners, Christ Died for us. And there's a couple of realities in regards to this love. We see that his love is active while we were still sinners. He didn't wait until we were lovable. He didn't wait until we were attractive. He came after us when we were wretched. He pursued us when we hated him. So must we go after those who aren't so lovable, go after those who would fall into that category of extra grace required. Why? Jesus did it for us. His love is active. His love is expressive. He he showed his love for us. He demonstrated his love for us. Look for ways to express the love that you have for one another. Being faithful to express it in in a way that others receive it. Recognizing that I am called to live out this love. I am called to serve, to give of myself that others may prosper. Be united in that pursuit and allow that gospel rooted love to flow freely to our brothers and our sisters in Christ in a world that doesn't know Him. But not only serving as one, He says, walk as one, being in full accord and of one mind, have a lifestyle that's characterized by dynamic gospel togetherness. What does this lifestyle look like? Well, it's simple. Being acutely aware of the health of the body. Know my brothers and sisters. Know them. Both their strengths and their failings. But beyond just knowing them, I need to know and be known. I need to put myself out there. I need to not be afraid of honesty. This needs to be the best place for me to have the worst day of my life. I need to share my aches, my pains. Be acutely aware of the health of the body. Encourage and admonish one another. Meet the needs of one another. Defer to one another in love. Bear with the failings of the weak. And resist the urge to judge, as Pastor Jason shared with us a few weeks ago. Live in harmony with one another. Seek to outdo one another in showing honor. Prioritizing the gathering with one another. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. And so much more. You know, when we live and breathe as one, what does the scripture say happens in the world? By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The world takes notice. They see this body of believers that's functioning in a way that's so counter-cultural. Then we live as a shining light then the gospel radiates. Not only is Paul calling them to complete his joy, but he's also calling them to embrace a gospel motive. And that's our second point here this morning. Embrace a gospel motive. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. So this idea of selfish ambition or conceit I was asking myself, what does this mean? And how does it manifest itself in the ways in which I serve other people? I think selfish ambition would be a desire that feeds my own flesh, right? So so I'm doing good things, but I'm doing them with the wrong heart motive. And I asked myself, how do I know when my service flows out of this idea of selfish ambition or conceit. An all about me kind of mindset. Here's some questions I wrestled through this week as I was thinking about what does this mean? Maybe these will be helpful for you as you evaluate this second point. Do you find yourself, excuse me, do you find your sense of worth and value fluctuating with the opportunities that you have ahead of you. In other words, if someone else is asked to do something that you feel you are good at, do you struggle with feelings of insecurity and self-doubt rather than rejoicing in the ways in which God is using others? Another question to consider, does the thought of failure terrify you? Are you at times paralyzed to the point of inaction or do you compensate for your fear? by an extreme attention to detail and control. This oftentimes can reveal a preoccupation with your own agenda. Now the question, do you think too highly of yourself and your efforts? How do you respond to the criticism of others? Are you open to feedback, even when it's critical? Do you feel that the success of an endeavor hinges on your ability to say yes to it? Do you find it difficult to say no? Do you find yourself habitually with way too much on your plate? Do you typically fall into the trap of being a workaholic as it pertains to life, work, and ministry? Do you find yourself using people to achieve your end? Are you quick to seek forgiveness when you fail others, or do you justify your own hurtful actions, seeing the end as justifying the means? Are you quick and eager to take credit for the work accomplished? Do you struggle when others are praised and your efforts are overlooked? Do you find yourself getting frustrated when credit is not given to you for the work that you do? Do you find yourself comparing your gifts and abilities to those given by God to others? Do you refuse to see the ways in which God has gifted you? Do you feel entitled to success with the ventures you undertake in service and ministry? Do you battle with insecurity? That's a hard list of questions to process through. As I was digging into this text and asking these questions in my own heart, I I came to grips with the ugliness of my own selfish ambition. Brothers and sisters, selfish ambition creeps in really subtly. And for many, this selfish ambition isn't manifest in a power struggle to achieve greatness, but rather selfish ambition can be revealed in the fears and insecurities that cripple us. How are you doing in this area? What are the ways in which you find yourself struggling with this selfish ambition? Brothers and sisters, we need to think less sometimes about about the what's that we're doing and more about the one whom we are doing them for. Recognizing that God doesn't call you to results. He calls you to faithfulness. God calls you to use the gift that he's given you, and it finds its significance, not in the size of the ability, but in your willingness to give it to a holy God and allow him to make an impact. You know, one of the most amazing servants that I had the privilege of knowing was a missionary friend of mine who served in, the, in Brazil, to the Catechina Indians. And, and he got, he, he was called by God to go to this tribe, and he gets there, and uh, as, as he's going there, he really wants to tell them about the gospel. And his desire as a new missionary is, I want to see people come to know Jesus. And the first thing he realizes is their language did not have a word for forgiveness. How do you teach the gospel without them understanding what forgiveness is? Their culture had no understanding of it, let alone uh, even even being able to to open the word and and show them they didn't have a written language. They had a spoken language, no written language, no word for forgiveness. So so my dear friend said, well, I, I need to learn their language. Then I need to create a written language and I need to teach them how to read it so that I can translate the scriptures into this written language to get to that point of being able to share the gospel with them. And you realize how long it took for him to get to the point of being able to fully unfold the gospel? 35 years, he saw his first convert. And then a church established at the tail end of his ministry and his legacy was the translation of the scriptures into a language that didn't exist prior to him coming to this tribe. And now a church is there. And you look at this and you say, wow, what if... He measured his success based on numbers, based on numerical growth, based on some of these other external factors that cripple us. No, he said, I'm here to serve Jesus. I'm here to do what I've been called to do. And it's not, a, it's not an attractive ministry. It's one that people are gonna look at me and probably judge. But it's one that God has called me to. And as he remained faithful, brothers and sisters, God brought The fruit, I think as we come back to this idea of of what it means to live in dynamic gospel unity, I think all of us need to look at it and say, my gift, no matter how big, no matter how small, it matters to God. He wants to use it. He wants to use it. So, give freely through serving with with a pure motive. You know, not only does Paul encourage them to complete his joy, to embrace the gospel motive, but he also calls them to, and this is our last point, serve one another in humility. Serve one another in humility. He says, look not only to your own interests, or look, yeah, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. How do we do this? What does it look like? Well, simple. Simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Embrace a Christ like perspective. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12. Have this mind in you, which was yours in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say in verses 5 to 11 Jesus was willing to set aside his rights. He took on himself the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the will of the Father. He obeyed even at great personal cost. And just as Christ gave, so must die. Serve one another in humility. Pursue a Christ-like priority. Look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He set aside his own interests to pursue the good of others. He bore the pain of those that he loved. He endured great inconvenience that others would prosper. Brothers and sisters, as we wrap up our time here this morning, how are we doing with this gospel strategy? You know, the way that Paul calls us to live is challenging, right? Well, truthfully, it's beyond challenging. It's impossible in our own strength. I'm going to have the worship team come on up as we just wrap up our time. And you know, for some here this morning, maybe you hear all of this and your heart gets overwhelmed and you say, I just can't do it. Maybe... For some, you've been attempting to simply go through the motions, but all of your efforts are seeming to fall flat as you've yet to embrace the realities spoken of at the onset of this chapter. The reality is meant to bolster your confidence as you pursue his mission. And what's the answer for you? Well, embrace the gospel. Embrace the reality that you were created by God to worship him. Embrace the reality that in our sin and in our flesh, we exchange the worship of God for the worship of self and sin. And that sin separated us from Almighty God. And because of our sin, we deserve death and eternal separation from our Father. That's our wage. Jesus came to earth. He lived the life that you could not live, the life of perfection. He died the death that you deserved, paying your sin debt. He was ever faithful to take on your health so that you could have his heaven. And he offers you the gift of eternal life in the person of Jesus today. And if you've never received him, I hope and I pray that today is that day for you. If you have received him, then let your heart rest. In all it is that he is doing in you and through you. Let it rest in all of the ways that he's desiring to use you. Rest in confidence in who he has made you to be. Run hard in community that you might live out the dynamic gospel unity that he desires for all of us. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful to be called your children. We thank you, Father, for the ways in which you've drawn us to yourself, the ways in which you've given us life, the ways in which you've pursued us. We're thankful, Father, for the gospel. We're thankful, Father, for the example we have in Christ. Oh, God, we pray that you'd make us more like Jesus. We pray, God, that his humble example, God, would be a light for us, that we would set aside our own interests, that we would look to the interests of others, that we would walk in this dynamic gospel unity, and that our hearts together would beat as one. Oh, we need you, Father. Help us now, we pray. For it's in Christ's name we pray these things, and for his glory. Amen.